0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. What I want to do this morning is read this psalm, ask the Lord's blessing upon our time, and then we will dive in together. Psalm 42. For the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go, go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. It will be a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As the shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet Praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Father, I thank you for such an honest psalm. I pray that you would teach us, as we study your word this morning, that you would teach us how to suffer well. Teach us how to be stricken and afflicted well. Teach us how to go through trials well. Father, I pray for those in this room that are currently going through a desert of despair where they are panting for you as a deer for the water brooks. Where they need your refreshing, they need your restoration, and they are saying with this psalmist, where are you? Have you disappeared? Have you left me? And maybe not only they are saying it, but their friends are their family, those around them are also saying, I thought you trusted in a good God and look at what he has brought upon you. Father, give us a sustaining spirit, a persevering soul, that even in the darkest of times we would trust you, our good shepherd, our good God. Bless our time together in your word this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we come to Psalm 42, and several people have asked me—not uh, several, a couple—have asked me, "Hey, why are we so heavy-handed here? This is so like we're mourning, we're lamenting. It's so dark, it's so sad. Why can't we be happy?" Um, if you know me, you know I—I I think I'm one of the happiest people. I love laughing, I love smiling. I am a happy person. I, I think you might have to get to know me a little bit better, but. i'm happy um maybe it doesn't always show because i think life presents serious sides that you have to understand and deal with and you have to deal with accordingly and i've said it before if you know enough people when the bible says you should weep with those who weep if you know enough people you will always be weeping always I, i think if i could say in a sentence or in a phrase what What I I desire for Christ Bible Church, it would be this, that we are serious about our joy. I want us to be serious about our joy. We're serious about being happy and being satisfied, but not in circumstances. A lot of people have said, aren't there happy psalms? I mean, it's the psalms. It's the book of happiness. It's the book of joy. Where are the joyful songs? Where are the joyful psalms? And first of all, we're going to get to some of them. Uh, We still have half of our summer left, so we'll be okay. But secondly, I want to I just fill you in on where I'm coming from biblically. Uh, putting the Psalms into a category is a very challenging thing to do. If you put them into different categories, uh, you could Google that category of the Psalms and you'll find 20 different ways that they split up and categorize the Psalms. The best way that I could categorize them would be something like this. We have 150 Psalms. And it's starting from least to most represented in the Psalter. Seven of the Psalms, seven of the 150 Psalms are what we would call imprecatory Psalms. They're angry Psalms. They're Psalms that David or somebody, whoever's writing is praying. God, deal with my enemies, strike them down, destroy them. I'm in turmoil. Be my vengeful God. Help. Eight would be Psalms of Thanksgiving. Ten would be what we would call royal Psalms. Um, about half are dealing with setting uh, an earthly king and about half are dealing with setting God as king, so royal, kingly psalms. Thirteen would be wisdom psalms. Fifteen would be the psalms of ascent. Uh, Those are those psalms that you would sing and and recite as you were making your way to the Temple Mount. Thirty-nine of the 150 psalms are praise psalms. And 58 of the 150 psalms are lament psalms. So, if you add up all these categories and just bunch them into two categories of tones. Happy, yippy-skippy-glad, or somber-sober-struggling. This is how you would do it. All of the thanksgiving, about half of the royal, about half of the psalms of ascent, and all of the praise psalms would go into one category and would make up 60 psalms. All of the imprecatory, half of the royal psalms, half of the ascent psalms, all of the wisdom and all of the lament psalms would go into the sober, somber psalms, and that would make up 90 psalms. So we've got 90 of the 150 psalms that are sober, that are either utterly depressed and despairing, or struggling or fighting. We have sixty Psalms that are happy and yippy skippy. So almost two thirds, right? One hundred of one hundred and fifty would be two thirds. Almost two thirds of the book of Psalms is sober, is is despairing. I don't know if you've thought of the Psalms that way. Psalms, happy book. Well, Yes, there are times of joy. Why would it be dispersed this way? Why would there be 90 psalms of struggle and of depression and 60 psalms of happiness? I think it's because trouble in this world is inevitable. Suffering, trial, pain, depression, despairing will come. It's not a matter of if you will go through hard times, it's a matter of when. And I believe the the majority of us here would say we've gone through them. We know what they feel like. We will all face difficult times. So the question is, how do we face those difficult times? One of the reasons why we love the book of Psalms is they are so human. They're so bipolar. In one moment, they're just, I love Jesus. And then the other moment, are you gone? Did you leave me? Have you forsaken me? There is utter ecstasy and utter depression, just like our lives, just like our lives. And it doesn't even have to be a day to day thing. Even within a day, there can be moments of just absolute bliss and moments of absolute despair in a day. We are just as bipolar. So that's one of the reasons why we love this book. As we dive into Psalm 42, I need to give you some introductory notes as we dive in. But I believe that this psalm, number one, it is a wisdom psalm and it's also a lament psalm together. That's why, again, it's very hard to categorize the psalms. But the subtext here, the little superscription for the choir director, a maskal of the sons of Korah, helps us with the goal of this psalm. My Bible says a maskal. Maskal is a word. It's obviously you can't. That's not an English word. You don't look at that and go, I know what that means. It's what we would call transliterated Hebrew word uh, like hallelujah, like Abba. They don't translate them because we know what they mean. Um, hallelujah means praise the Lord. Abba means Father. And so they just leave them there and they just put English letters to the Hebrew sounds and that's called transliteration. Maskell is a transliterated word. But the reason why they transliterated this word is because they didn't know exactly what it meant. So they decided to leave it the way it was as a transliterated word. What does it mean? Well, the closest Hebrew word that we can find to maskell it's actually in Psalm 32, verse 8, and it's the word instruction. So this is a poem or a song of instruction. There are 13 mascal psalms in the Psalter, and they are supposed to give us a window into teaching, into suffering, into trials, and how to deal with suffering rightly. So it's a mascal, and it's written by the Sons of Kor. It's a mascal of the Sons of Kor for the choir director. Who are the sons of Korah? Why do they get the the opportunity to write this? And what's the purpose of it? Sons of Korah were a group of priests who were charged with the ministry of singing. Second Chronicles 20, verse 19. You can just write it down and look it up on your own time. It describes the sons of Korah in action. The Korahites, it says this the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So they were in charge of singing. And they are singing a song of wise instruction. So if we put them all together, Psalm 42 is a song of instruction, a wisdom, lament, song of despair written for our own instruction when we are despairing. This is written to help us in the moment of despair. Three elements of overview. Let's just do a broad sweep overview. Number one, it's clear to see that externally... The psalmist's circumstances are oppressive. It's clear to see that, right? You see in verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. Uh, Verse 10, his bones have been shattered. It feels like he's being crushed, not only from the external forces of circumstances, but also the adversaries. There is taunting going on in verse 10. The adversaries are reviling him. They're saying all the day long, where is your God? In verse 3, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Meaning what? It looks like God's abandoned him. So externally, something is going on, so much so that enemies of God say, see, we knew it all along, there is no God. There is no God. Number two, not only... Externally are his circumstances oppressing. Internally, his emotions are depressed, are full of turmoil. If you go to verse 5, he is in despair. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed, agitated to the point of, uh, there are times that this word shows up, of contemplation of suicide. I wish I was dead. I'm so utterly in anguish and turmoil. And verse 11, he says the same thing. You're in despair, my soul. You've become disturbed within me. Verse 3, his tears. He's crying constantly. Verse 7, it feels like he is drowning under breakers of waves and waves and waves and waves. Brian Nix would know this from uh, times of surfing, but there are moments that are frightening when you just keep getting pummeled and pummeled and pummeled. I can't get up for oxygen. I'm dying. Today is the day I'm going to see Jesus. Circumstantially and internally, the psalmist is going through such circumstances that he would say, I'm just stuck underwater. I'm drowning in what's going on. My emotions are drowning me. The circumstances are drowning me. So number three, not only is he externally dealing with circumstances that are oppressive, not only internally are his emotions depressed, but number three, he is in a fight He is fighting for hope. You can see that in verse 5 and verse 11. Hope in God because I will again praise him. Meaning what? I'm not praising now. I can't praise now even though I used to be the worship director. Look at verse 4. I used to go along with the throng, with the group of people, and I used to lead them in the procession to the house of God. I used to be the worship director. I used to be the worship pastor. And now I'm in a place where I can't even open my mouth and sing a song. I can't praise him. But I'm fighting. I'm not going to let go. I'm not just going to roll over and say, that's it, I'm done. I'm fighting for hope. I'm fighting for hope. And you know what I love about this psalm? Is it ends there. Turn to verse 11. Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him. Meaning what? I'm still not praising. This isn't a Disneyland psalm. This isn't a Disney psalm. This isn't, oh, life is hard, but hey, it all ends well. This is life is hard, and guess what? I got to the end of my song, and life is still hard. Nothing's changed. Psalm 43 is actually a part of Psalm 42. Some people say, well, no, something changes because he also wrote Psalm 43, and Psalm 43 really should be attached to Psalm 42. But guess what? Verse 5 says the same thing. Hope in God, because I shall again praise him. Meaning I'm not praising now. I want to be, and I've done it before, but right now I'm in a place where I cannot praise God. So those three elements as, as kind of background and overview... Help us to see this psalm is in the Bible to show us what to do when we are there. When we are in a place where externally the circumstances are oppressive, internally we are in despair and disturbed and depressed, and we're fighting for hope, and nothing seems to be breaking through. Nothing. God, are you there? Go to bed, wake up, nothing's changed. God, are you there? So, if we can live in this psalm just for this morning, I think that we will absorb a very um, counterintuitive understanding of how we deal with suffering. That's what I want to show you, just six ways that the psalmist deals with his suffering. And I've heard this sermon preached several times in different ways, and there's always different ways you can slice up a text. But this is what I want to do, and it's been the most fruitful as I've heard it preached, and I I want to do it, it's very different than what we normally do. We normally go verse 1 to verse 11, we just kind of go through it. I think to saturate our souls with this text, to dive into the deep end of this pool, I think I want to go from the vantage point of when we are stuck, what would we do? And just feel his emotions, understand the truth of what's happening, and see the six ways that he responds in the order that they would normally come for us. We'll, we'll put it back in order when we get to the end, but I'll show you what I mean. Number one... The first response when you are despairing, the first response when you are depressed in turmoil, despairing in suffering is asking God why. That's the first response. Obviously, in verse one, he starts by saying, I long for you and we're going to get there. But I think if we're honest, the first fleshly physical response when bad things happen, when we are going through difficult times is why? God, why would you ever allow this to happen? And we struggle with those three pillars of God's character. Either you are not truly omnipotent, not truly all in control, and you let this one slip because you couldn't do anything about it. Or maybe you are not omniscient. Maybe you don't know everything and you're, you're just as frustrated with the circumstance that just happened because you wish you could have done something about it. Or maybe you aren't all loving. Maybe you don't really care. You say you are loving, but maybe you don't really care. And we look at one of those three pillars and we just say something's off. Because if God truly was all of those three things at the exact same moment, this situation would not be happening. That's because we take the circumstance and we draw a line to God's character from our circumstance. We need to do the opposite. We need to draw a line from God's character and knowing who he is and draw that line to our circumstances instead of looking backwards. If we put on the glasses of our suffering... We're going to see everything tainted in a different light, in a different world, in a different feel. We need to remember God is good. But we will ask God why. Look at verse 9. I will say to God, my rock. I love how he says that. And we're going to get to that in point number two. Why have you forgotten me? Why? Why have you forgotten me? Now, this is an obvious overstatement. I want to show you why. Number one, he says, my rock you are still my refuge. I still hope in you. I still trust in you. But you've forgotten me. Um, no. This, this is an overstatement. Look at verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. So he's still commanding loving kindness or mercy that we saw in Psalm 23 that will not let you go but will track you down. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's the same word here. Mercy, loving kindness. So the psalmist knows God is still good, he still loves me, and he's still there. He hasn't forgotten me. But So why does he say this? Why does he say, verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Well, we all know why. Because it feels like he's been forgotten. It feels like in this moment, God, you've left me, you've forgotten me, you don't care about me. It feels that way, and it looks that way to the enemies. They're saying, where's your God? He's left you. He's disappeared even though the psalmist knows that God is in control and knows that God is good and will send his loving kindness to him, he still struggles and he says, God, have you forgotten me? Do you, do you know what I'm going through? This is crucial. If you are not in the midst of turmoil, if you're not in the midst of despair, if you're not in the midst of suffering and you're trying to help somebody who is, this is a crucial, a vital lesson to counseling somebody who's going through despairing circumstances. And it would be this. Um, One of my favorite passages when I'm dealing with crisis situations is Job 6.26. Go ahead and write it down, Job 6.26. Job says in the midst of his despair, you remember what he went through, losing everything, almost to the point of losing his life. And he says, as his friends are just taking every single word that Job is saying and saying, see, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. If Job's friends had been here in Psalm 42, when David says, or the psalmist says, why have you forgotten me? They would have said, God hasn't forgotten you. Where's your theology? You're believing lies. What's going on with you? What's wrong with you? It's because of what you're believing that you're going through this. They would have just harassed him for what he said. And Job says this in Job 6, 26. Why are you trying to reprove my words when you know that the words of a despairing man are but wind? Crucial. Despairing people speak wind words that come out of their mouth, gone. They're gone. Ask somebody who is in despair right now, ask them two years later if they regret saying anything that they said in their despairing moments, and they would say, Oh, I'm surprised God didn't strike me down with lightning. Absolutely, I was struggling. I knew it, but I couldn't say it, and I, it was so frustrating. Can we just be honest at Christ Bible Church? It is not not wrong when when you're wrestling with God, why? Don't ever go up to somebody who is suffering and depressed and in turmoil and say, don't ever ask God why. He has a reason. He has a purpose. And it's for your good. Let their wind words go and pray for them. That's what Job's friends did that was right. The only thing God commended them for was sitting with Job for seven days in silence. Put your arm around your brother or your sister and weep with them. Pray with them. This psalmist asks God why? He pleads, God, why? Where are you? But, number two, he doesn't stop there. And I think that we do this as well. We ask God why and then we even hear ourselves speak and we go, okay, we know that you are in control. We know that you're doing something. We know you haven't forgotten me. So, verse number two, This psalmist affirms God's sovereign love. After asking why, I believe that we would quickly then say, okay, I know you have a reason. I know there is something that you're doing here. And this psalmist affirms God's sovereign love, his sovereign control and care and love. Verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. His loving kindness hasn't stopped, even though it feels like it has. He's still pouring out loving kindness upon me. And it's from a sovereign hand, a God that is in control. Notice that he says in verse seven, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. What a huge emphasis in God's sovereignty. This is not the devil's waves. This is not the world's breakers that are plunging over the psalmist and pinning him down to the ocean floor. This is God himself crashing down circumstances that are oppressive and suffering upon the psalmist. God is in control, and the psalmist knows that, and he reiterates that, and he says, you are the one doing this because you have a reason and you have a purpose for my greatest good. It's not an accident that I'm going through this, and it's not the devil made me do this, and it's not the devil is working against me, even though the devil does hate us. Remember Job. The devil could do nothing that God did not allow him to do to Job. Job knew that. Job 13, verse 15, Though you slay me, still I will hope in you, and this will be my salvation. You're doing this because you love me, And I'm struggling, but I will hope in you. I will hope in you. God's sovereignty in the midst of circumstances that are oppressive and despairing is an anchor for our souls. If we can say it this way, if you think of your your soul as a little ship that's being tossed around in hurricane weather, um, God's sovereignty is the ballast in your boat that holds you down, that makes it so that you aren't just instantly tossed over. If you do not believe in a God who is in control of every single molecule out there, then what hope do you have that any good could come out of it? How could you ever be anchored to anything if you think it's all happenstance? It's all... Nobody nobody knows what's going to end up happening. It's luck. It's coincidence. We can just hope for the best. No, we believe God is good and we cling to His promises the psalmist affirms God's sovereign love. He asks why, which we normally do first. And then secondly, we would probably instantly go to, no, no, you are in control. You are good and you are loving. And I will have that ballast in my boat that will weigh me down in the trials, so that I will not be tossed to and fro. And that's really going into number three. He preaches to his own soul. He preaches to his own soul. This is so crucial. This is I believe that once you are saved, this is probably the thing that keeps you saved. Um, This is the spiritual discipline that God has given to us to sanctify us and to get us to the end, to the finish line, saved. Obviously, God is the one who does that, but he uses the means of preaching to your own soul. There is a war that is going on, and this is what this psalmist preaches to his own soul. It's in verse 5 and verse 11. Hope in God. He's preaching that to his own soul because he says, why are you in despair? Oh, my soul. Why have you become disturbed within me? This is what you need to do, soul. Hope in God. You see, I'm going through trials. I'm going through suffering. I I cannot. I don't feel like I'm getting any oxygen. I'm so weighed down. What should I do? What do I preach to myself? One thing, and it's very simple. Hope in God. See, that's it. There has to be something more than that. The reason why I think we have a knee-jerk reaction to just hope in God, that's all you need, is because we're often preaching different things to ourselves, or we're listening to different things, or we're speaking to God in different ways. If you're anything like me, when you go through a trial, the first thing you say is, God, answer for yourself here. I mean, if we're honest, this is really bad, this is a bad situation, and you need to tell me what you're doing. You need to tell me what's going on. I know you have some plan, but you need to tell me what it is. Let me in on it, and then I'll hope in you. That's why Spurgeon said, when you can't trace his hand, you trust his heart. When you can't figure out what he's doing, which if you could, you could be God, and that would be bad. I love you all, but if you could be God, we're in deep trouble. God is infinitely wise, and so we need to make sure he has purposes far beyond anything we could ever comprehend. And so when we preach to our souls, we preach, trust his heart, hope in him. We'll never ultimately know everything that he's doing this side of heaven. We never will. And it'll take us an eternity in heaven to figure out what he was doing. But we trust and we preach the truth to ourselves. The Christian life is one that is very cerebral. It's very intellectual. That's why Paul says, Take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Don't take emotions captive. If you have bad emotions, it's because you have bad thinking. Wrong thinking turns into wrong emotions and wrong living. Take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Be transformed. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to make sure that the mind is the battlefield, and so we're constantly preaching truth to ourselves. We need to do this because the moment that we get up in the morning... We're listening to lies being preached by our flesh and by our soul. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a book, it's actually just an exposition of Psalm 42 called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cures, writes this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. This man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you cast down? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. I will speak to you. And if this psalmist can preach to his own soul, hope in God, we have even more hope to preach to our souls this side of the cross. Can I encourage you, write down Romans 8 verses 31 through 35, and memorize that passage. That is what we need to be preaching every day to our souls. Romans 8, verses 31 through 35, you know it. You know the end, the crescendo of nothing can separate us from the love of God. But it starts with the understanding of if God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will we not with him give us all things? He'll give us everything. God the Father has done the hardest thing by crushing his son on the cross so he can give us anything he wants. He can give us anything. Anything for God to do will be easy compared to what he did on the cross. Ed Welch says it this way, On this side of the cross, misery does persist, but the scales are tipped in favor of joy. And I think that that's so crucial. Can I just give you one specific as far as preaching to your own soul? You need to have the word of God memorized to preach truth to yourself. In the moment of despair, when you are thinking, God's forgotten me, you preach truth. No, you will never leave me nor forsake me. Feels like you forgot me, but your word says you will never leave me or forsake me. You must not love me. No, your word says, Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. You need to have truth that counteracts your despair. And I believe that this is nowhere better demonstrated than Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, it's, it's said that if you were to cut him, he would bleed the Bible. He was just infused with Scripture. You remember when, in the book, Christian and Hopeful have just left Vanity Fair after Faithful had been martyred? Um, there's a reason for despair. You just lost your best friend to martyrdom. And they are walking, and as they do not go on the right path, so sin and losing your best friend, they find themselves in the pit of despair in a dungeon of despair. And in that dungeon, they are sitting, wondering if they're ever going to come out. It's called Doubting Castle. They're struggling in despair. And Pilgrim, the Christian, says this, as they're sitting in Doubting Castle, in despair, saying to each other, we're going to die. He says this, what a fool I have been. To lie like this in this stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free because in my chest pocket I have a key and the key is called promise that will I am thoroughly persuaded to open any lock in Doubting Castle. So Hopeful said, well, that is good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. So Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and hopeful immediately came out. Three times Bunyan says that the keys were in Christian's chest pocket. Now, Bunyan doesn't go any further than that, but I believe he's speaking from his own personal experience because he's writing Pilgrim's Progress from jail. He is in despair himself, and he's saying, this is how you get out of Doubting Castle. This is how you get out of Despair. You memorize scripture that stays with you in your soul such a way that when you are in that prison of depression, you pull it out of your chest pocket, you unlock the door, and you get out. What is that key? It's memorized scripture. It's memorized scripture. We must preach truth to ourselves. When we're in the midst of despair, we ask God, why? Then we affirm, no, no, you are in control. And then we start fighting with our souls. Hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. Fourthly, and this is the crazy one. This is where it just doesn't seem to fit. Fourthly, the psalmist sings. He sings. He sings. Verse 8, God's song, the the bottom half of verse 8, God's song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. As he's preaching truth to himself, the truth begins to take form, not just of descriptive truth and narrative truth and detailed biblical truth. It starts to take form of a melody and singing. Now, we don't know this for sure, but I I would bet this is not a song of jubilation. I don't think that he's singing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Yeah, I don't think he's singing that. And I don't think we should be singing that when there are people who couldn't sing that if they wanted to sing that in our congregation. As they're going through depressing circumstances and everybody around them is going, yay, life is so great. It's not for me. Am I weird? Am I, what's going on? That's why we need an arsenal of songs. And I, I, I pray, Lord willing, that we have such an arsenal of songs in the songs that we sing. But we need songs that work On the greatest days of leaping for joy and on the worst days of being crushed by depressing circumstances. We need songs. And if you get the right song, it works for both. It does. We need songs like It Is Well, which we are going to sing at the end of the service, so I won't go into detail about it. We need songs like... Isaac Watts wrote, How long will thou conceal thy face? My God, how long delay? When shall I feel those heavenly rays that chase my fears away? How long shall my poor laboring soul wrestle and toil in vain? Thy word can all my foes control and ease my raging pain. Or William Cooper, who wrote a lot of the songs that we sing, um, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He he was uh, deeply struggling with depression. And he wrote this. We've sung this song before. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the seas and rise upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Why do we sing songs like this? Why do we sing? Why do we gather together in a corporate setting and sing? A lot of our service is lent to singing. Obviously not today because we had announcements. But normally we have a lot of singing. Why? Can I say it this way? Singing is a time when you are forced to talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. And if the songs are chosen properly and correctly, you will be preaching truth to yourself. Singing is a time when you are talking to yourself, you are talking to others, and you are talking to God and preaching the truth of God's word to yourself. It's a time when we put listening to ourselves on hold. Say, no, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to preach to my soul. And we preach to our souls through song. So sometimes we ask God why, then we have to affirm his sovereign care, his sovereign love, even in the midst of struggles and trials. Then we start preaching to our own souls. Then we start singing, singing songs of desperation. Then number five, we remember past experiences. Verse four, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. So we've detailed over the last three Sundays what the whole theology of remembering looks like. So, I'm not going to spend too much time on that because we've been to Psalm 23. We've been to Psalm 77. But I want you to take note of what it is that this psalmist remembers that gives him hope. What does this psalmist remember? You remember Psalm 77? The psalmist remembered the parting of the Red Sea. Psalm 23, uh, the psalmist remembers even though I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I remember you make me lie down in green pastures. You restore my soul. You lead me beside stilled waters. What does this psalmist remember? Verse 4, I remember these things. I pour out my soul within me. This is what he remembers. I used to go along with the throng, with the crowds, and I used to lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. What does he remember that is an anchor for his soul that enables him in the moment that he is in despair to hold on and cling to hope? What does he remember? Can I put it this way? He remembers a church service. Now, obviously, the church doesn't exist yet. We're in the Old Testament. But that's what he remembers. He remembers gathering together with the people of God and singing. I think that we have grown up, many of us, by God's grace, have grown up in church so long That we've lost the meaning of church. It's just become what we do. It's tradition. And even more than it becoming what we do in tradition, it becomes optional because we start thinking, I don't know. I don't get what it's producing. It doesn't do anything. It's really boring. Sometimes it's really cold. Sometimes it's really hot. Sometimes we don't we never know what to wear. I just it's it's not fun. And I've said this before. If this is a hobby, this is the worst hobby known to man. Let's go, let's go watch soccer games. That would be a better hobby to do. Let's do something else. I, I, this is just pointless if it is a hobby. If nothing more is happening here than me simply adding information to your brain, if nothing more is happening here when we're singing than just entertaining your aesthetic desires and your delight in music, if that's, if that's all that's happening... I can promise you hands down that when you are in despair and suffering, church will mean nothing to you. If all we're doing here is just a pep rally, church is going to do nothing when you're in despair. Because then all you would be remembering, if you remember church, would just be nostalgic. It would just be, hey, you remember those fun times hanging out with so-and-so? Patio, bagel time, donut time, hanging out, we had a great time, it was fun. Nostalgia, there's nothing wrong with nostalgia. I love nostalgia, but nostalgia doesn't help at all when you're depressed. In fact, sometimes nostalgia makes you more depressed because you remember the good old days. Brothers and sisters, what we do here on Sunday morning is not for the purpose of creating warm fuzzies and nostalgic hearts What we do when we gather together is give you ammunition for your soul so that when you are in the moment of despair, you can remember God is real because I met him at church. God is real. I've heard him speak. God loves me. God cares for me. I know it because I've sung the truth and it's so deeply rooted in my heart that it will never go away. God is real. Souls pass from death into life in this room. What we do here is vital. Absolutely vital. And so the psalmist remembers these moments. Oh, I remember. I remember these moments. I personally remember these moments for myself when I'm struggling with despair. I remember somebody getting saved and me being able to baptize them. I remember God changing the heart of an adulterer who couldn't care less about God and couldn't care more if he wanted to about lust And God woke him up and said, what am I doing? It gripped his heart and the lust of his adultery, all of those affections went to God. In a moment, his life changed forever. God is real. God is real. And that's why the psalmist remembers, oh, I remember God working. I remember God is real in those moments. Can I just ask your own heart? What is church to you? What is church? Is it a duty? Is it a delight? Is it your lifeline? You've got phone a friend, pull the audience, go to church. That's the one we need because I need to hear from God. The psalmist remembers going to a church service that God was real. Finally, number six, And like I said, I believe that this is the order in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own emotions that we go through. We ask God why, we affirm his sovereign love, we preach truth to our souls, we sing, we remember God's goodness, that he is alive, that he is working, that he got other people out of depressing circumstances and he can do the same with me. And finally, number six, we thirst for God. We thirst for God. But I want to note the order of this psalm. The thirsting begins this psalm in verses 1 and 2. You know it. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Literally, it's when shall I come and see the face of God? I want to see you again. I want to know you. I feel so distant, so removed. And the reason why I believe that that is first in this psalm, even though it's not always first in our experience of depression, is because ultimately, and this is the key, this psalmist is not praying for relief from his circumstances or praying for deliverance from his circumstances first and foremost. First and foremost, he is praying, God, give me you. I want you That's why I say that's number six on my list because it takes me a long time to get back to I love God and I want you when I'm in the midst of trials. That's why this psalm is really a rebuke to my own soul because the psalmist starts there. In fact, maybe the reason why he is struggling with depression is because he doesn't have God and he wants more of God. Ultimately, I think this is the whole point of the book of Psalms. The whole point of the book of Psalms, if I could sum it up in one sentence is that human hearts need to be weaned off of everything this world can offer. Human hearts need to be weaned off. That's the whole point of church. The reason why we gather together is so that God's word would wean us off of what this world has to offer and make us say with the psalmist, all I want is you. All I need is you. All I want is you. You are everything, even to the point that if I have to stay underwater, under these breakers to know you more, I'll stay here gladly. Don't deliver me from the trials. Leave me here. I'll stay here gladly. There's another man who said, Why have you forsaken me? And it wasn't just the psalmist. Even though here the psalmist says those words, he quickly knows, No, God hasn't forsaken me. He hasn't forgotten me because he hasn't been forgotten by God. And he knows that. But there's a man who was utterly forsaken and utterly forgotten by God. Our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross prayed this exact same prayer. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the difference was not that it just appeared that Jesus was forsaken. The difference was he was utterly forsaken. And because he was forsaken of the Father, you and I will never be forsaken by the Father. Because Jesus bore our sin, you and I will never have to bear the penalty for our sin. Because Jesus died our death, you and I will never have to fear eternal death. Because Jesus rose to newness of life, you and I will raise also with him. That's why Samuel Rutherford said, our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home in heaven. Thomas Watson says, so says a gracious heart. Lord, why is it that notwithstanding all my unworthiness, a fresh tide of mercy comes every single day. Are you there in the pit of despair, in doubting castle, struggling to see God? Are you asking why? Can I plead with you, affirm God's sovereign control in your life and his sovereign love, his love will chase you down like we saw in Psalm 23. Start the very difficult, very challenging, very tiring work of preaching to your soul and gain every ammunition you possibly can from God's word to preach to your soul. Sing, sing songs of despair that ultimately hope in God. Remember that he has never left you once and he has promised never to leave you. Remember past experiences. Remember God being real and pray thirst for God, thirst for him all the more in the midst of your despair. Then and only then will you be able to see, sing and say, it's well, it's well. The sorrows like sea billows roll. It is well with my soul. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalmist who so clearly articulates his depressing circumstances and his despair. We thank you for just a time of being able to be real in the psalms. And I pray for any in this room that are in the midst of despair and depression and suffering beyond anything they could possibly imagine. God, make Yourself known to them this day. You are real. You crushed Your Son so that they could find mercy. And You offer newness of life for all who would trust in You alone for the forgiveness of sins. That ultimately is our hope. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It wasn't just part of my sin or half of my sin or 99% of my sin that was thrown upon Jesus. It was all of my sin. I can do nothing to earn your forgiveness. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, oh, my soul, it is well. May we sing this from hearts that are glad in God, not in our circumstances. God, for those who are going through joyful times of happiness and there isn't a shred of despair anywhere in their lives, God, praise you for such times of peace. And God, I pray that you would help them to see those that are hurting, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, and to encourage with the hope of the gospel.